substance would not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you ever just sat down and tried to analyze this verse that God so loved the world? So is an adverb of degree. God so loved. Let the surveyors bring their chains and survey the word so. Let the architect draw a diagram of the word so. That God so loved the world that he gave his son. I've never loved anything like that. Therefore I know that with my finite mind I cannot love as God loved. God in an infinite mind. God in an infinite love. You just think for a moment, if you have a son, that what would it take for you to take your son out and see a mob take this son, brutally beat him, spit in his face, slap him in the face, say every mean, evil, hateful thing they could think about, and then see them put your son to death. But when we study the life of Christ and study the cross of Christ, this is what it means. So the, Christ means, the cross means that Christ had a tremendous love for you and for me. And I am convinced that if we had the ability to understand and to appreciate the tremendous love that God has for mortal man, that every person that's ordered to him this morning who has never obeyed the gospel, would obey the gospel this, at this very service. And every unfaithful member in this congregation, if he could really appreciate the love of God and what the cross of Jesus Christ means, that this individual would make things right with God this day. But so many times in life we just take things for granted. And maybe that's what we do with the cross of Christ. We just take it for granted. But had you ever just sat down and thought what this cross means? In the first place it means that today that we're not saved by the blood of animals. Before Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross, the best thing that man could do about his sins was to take the blood of animals and offer this blood that his sins might be temporarily lifted, but they were never forgiven until Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross. Those people during the patriarchal dispensation and the Jewish age that will go to heaven will go there because of the blood of Christ. I was speaking in a meeting out in Arkansas and there the preacher there took the position that during the patriarchal dispensation those people had their sins forgiven through the blood of animals. And during the mosaical dispensation they had their sins forgiven through the blood of animals. Well, if that's true, why in the world would Jesus Christ die on the Calvary's cross if those people had their sins forgiven through the blood of those animals? Why not just continue to offer the blood of these animals? But the blood of animals, listen to me carefully, the blood of animals never washed away anybody's sins. The blood of animals never did forgive anybody of their sins. The blood of the animals only temporarily lifted, or as we say sometimes, rolled forward their sins for one year. Then at the end of that year, all their sins and iniquities came back upon them. And so the cross of Christ means that we cannot be saved by the blood of animals.
In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and beginning with verse 1, Paul said, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never those sacrifices they offer year after year make the comer thereunto perfect, for then would they cease to be offered. For, for a person once purged of his sins would have no more conscience of sins. But in verse 4, Paul said, But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance made of sin again every year. And so all people in heaven will be there because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the cross means that God loved us in spite of our sins. For in Romans the third chapter and verse 23, Paul said, For we have all sinned and come short, short of the glory of God. In 1 John 1, 8, If a man says he has no sin, that the truth is not in him. We have all sinned before God. And yet, even though man despised God, rejected God, and sinned against God, yet because of this tremendous love that God had, he sent his son to die for those who were enemies of God. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, beginning with verse 18, the Apostle Peter says, For as much as you know, you will not redeem with corruptible things, such as silver and gold, from your vain compensation life, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as lamb slain without blemish and without spot. What is Peter saying? Why, if a man had all the gold of the world, he couldn't purchase salvation. The smartest man in the world cannot devise a scheme of salvation. You were not purchased with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but you were purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Years ago, I was preaching in New Orleans in a gospel meeting, and uh, some of you have been to, to the slave market in New Orleans. Years ago, they would bring slaves here and sell them. And I read the story of this that on one occasion when they were auctioning off slaves, that there was one uh, black girl standing in the line of a long line of people. Some of them were laughing, some were joking, some were stubborn, some were rebellious, some defiant. But he said he noticed that this girl, about 18 or 19 years old, was crying. And every time one would go up on the auction block and the man announced sale, that the girl would grip her hands and tremble and cry. And he kept observing this girl. And finally she went up on the block. Her age told her age, what she had the ability to do. And this man who had observed this, observed what was going on. And so he paid the purchase price for the girl. And when he did, he took the papers to her. And he said, uh, you are now a free citizen. You're no longer a slave. Of course, you've been reared in slavery. She didn't know how to appreciate this. Didn't know hardly what it meant. He said, you're free like I am. I have purchased you. I paid the price. And this girl was so thrilled that she fell down at the feet of this man to show her appreciation for what this man had done for her. And when I read that, I thought in a small way that illustrates what Jesus Christ did for us. We were sinners before God, and yet God so loved us that he sent his son to die on Calvary's cross and for to be made possible for us to be saved. All the money in the world could not redeem a man from his sins. All the silver in the world could not redeem a man from his sins. All the education in the world could not redeem a man from his sins. All the wisdom of the world could not redeem a man from his sins. But it took the blood of the Son of God to make it possible for you and for me to have our sins forgiven. 
And now can you conceive of man rejecting this and saying, I want no part of this, even though Jesus Christ died, that I might have my sins forgiven. The cross of Christ means to me that I too must be crucified with Jesus Christ. In Romans and Galatians, the sixth chapter and verse 14, the apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. In Galatians, the second chapter and verse 20, the apostle Paul said that, uh, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live, and live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Have you, let me ask you, have you ever been crucified with Jesus Christ? Now I'm aware of the fact that there are possibly many things that we need in the Lord's church. And sometimes in traveling over the country and preaching in gospel meetings and individuals ask, Brother Black, what is the most needed thing in the Lord's church today? Well, I'm not that smart. I don't know what is the most needed thing in the Lord's church today, but I know one of the most needed things in the Lord's church today. One of the most needed things in the Lord's church today is a great crucifixion of God's people. And so many people are attempting to live the Christian life when they've never been crucified with Jesus Christ. And it's just absolutely an impossibility for an individual to live the Christian life without being crucified with Jesus Christ. Our hands need to be crucified that we may use them in the service of God. That is, they need to be crucified to the world. Paul said, I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified unto me. Have you ever been crucified to the world? Is the world crucified to you? Had you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul could carry on his ministry in the face of heartaches, trials, tribulations, when they would take him and beat him across his back when he was almost dead, when the Romans used rods on him, and yet he would carry on his ministry, when they stoned him outside the city of Lystra and left him for dead, and when he revives, he goes on preaching, preaching. Why? Because he had been crucified with Jesus Christ. One cannot faithfully live the Christian life until he's crucified with Jesus Christ. And if we had a congregation of people, and all of them crucified with Jesus Christ, and all of them crucified in the world, oh, what these people would mean to the cause of Christ. So our hands need to be crucified in the world, that we may use them in the kingdom of God. In Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter, verse 10, Solomon said, Whatsoever thy hands find to do, do it with all of thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave whether thou goest. In other words, when you die, you're not going to be able to use your hands in the kingdom of God. You're not going to be able to promote the kingdom of God. Why? Because there's no wisdom in the grave, no knowledge in the grave, no work in the grave, no device in the grave. Therefore, whatsoever your hands find to do, do it with all of your might. Let us take, for instance, a gospel meeting. Just suppose that we have a gospel meeting and every individual in the congregation says, I'm going to do everything that I possibly can to make this meeting a success. Had you ever thought what a kind of a gospel meeting we'd have today? But you know why that so many of our gospel meetings are failures? It's because we can't get our own members to attend many gospel meetings. And how in the name of common sense can we convert people of the world when the people of the world observe us and they say that person is a member of the church, that person doesn't attend the service, then why should I? I remember several years ago I was preaching a gospel meeting down in Pensacola, Florida, and a fine-looking gentleman came in one night 
he was well dressed and and uh, he said uh, that uh, I worked with a lady who was a member of this congregation and he said she invited me to this gospel meeting and he said I'd like to see her well she wasn't there and then he said well I worked with Mr. So and so he attends this church and he wasn't there and as far as I know he never did come back and how in the world can we expect people who are not members of the church of our Lord to attend the gospel meeting when we can't get our own members to attend the gospel meeting. And many times we talk about how prejudiced people are. Well, if they're prejudiced, it's because we made them prejudiced in most instances by teaching one thing and practicing something else. And so if we're going to serve God, we need to serve Him with all. Solomon said, with all of our might. In John the ninth chapter, verse 4, Jesus Christ said, let us work while it is day. Well, why? He said, for the night is coming when no man can work. Let me tell you this, my friends, and I want you to listen to me carefully. There's coming a time in your life when you cannot attend a gospel meeting. There's coming a time in your life when you cannot invite a person to the house of God. There's coming a time in your life when you cannot talk to an individual about his spiritual condition. And we need to realize this. That the time will come when you will not have the opportunity to do these things. Well, even the Son of God realized this. He said, let us work while we have the day. That is, well, we could paraphrase that. It simply means this. Let us take advantage of opportunities that we have, for the time will come when we'll no longer have these opportunities. And that's what we should realize in living the Christian life. And so our feet need to be crucified, that we may go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In Romans uh, 10th chapter, beginning with verse 13, Paul said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a beautiful statement. That whosoever, that includes the white man, the black man, the red man, all people, the educated, the uneducated, the wise, the unwise, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then is, how shall they call upon him and whom they not believe? Well, I can understand that. You can understand that, can't you? These people in Oxford never heard the gospel. How in the world can they call upon the name of Jesus Christ when they never heard about Jesus Christ? How can they hear without a... And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Now notice it. For as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel. That's how the Bible speaks about preaching. How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel. That is, the meaning of that is those who tell other people about Jesus Christ, those who tell people about the gospel, those who work for the kingdom of God. So our feet need to be crucified in the world. Our minds need to be crucified to the world that we may think about Christ and concentrate upon Christ. In Philippians, the fourth chapter and verse 8, the apostle Paul said, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, Whatsoever things are godly or good report, whatsoever things are lovely, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, notice it, think on these things. Think on what things? Those things that are true, those things that are honest, those things that are just, those things that are pure, those things that are lovely, those things that are good report. Think on these things. Who's he writing to? Writing to Christians. Why is he writing to them? Telling them how to live that they may appreciate the cross of Jesus Christ. And I am convinced... That if an individual thinks about any one particular thing long enough and hard enough, he'll reach the point where he cannot keep from thinking about it. Haven't you seen certain people in your life and you say to yourself, well, I know what, I'm, what he's going to talk about when I see him. 
Well, why? Because he's thought about this particular thing so long that every time you talk to him, he's going to talk about it. We become what we think. And we need to think about those things that are true, honest, and just, and pure, and good to the point that we can't keep from thinking about them. And that's crucifying our mind of the world that we may serve God. Yes, we need a great crucifixion, Lord's Church. And have you ever just sat down and thought about what Jesus Christ did for us when we talk about the cross of Christ? In the next few minutes, I want you to go with me. For the last few hours of our Lord's life upon this earth, that you may have a greater appreciation for the cross of Jesus. If you remember, Jesus Christ was in the upper room. It was here he instituted the Lord's Supper. He washed his disciples' feet. He predicted his betrayal by one of them, one of his followers, and his and denial by another. Then he took with him Peter, James, and John, and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he entered the garden, he said, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Why so sorrowful? Because the aggregated sins, the unnumbered millions, unborn, living, dead were piled up on his head and his heart that night. He, he was about to be charged with the blackest crime in the annals of perfidy. He's about to suffer until justice that had been outraged and insulted would declare that justice was satisfied. He's about to suffer the most shameful death ever recorded in the pages of history. He's about to go through a test on which the welfare of the whole world depended. So it isn't any wonder he cried out, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And so when he enters the garden, he says to Peter, James, and John, You men tarry here while I go yonder and worship. And he went about a stone's throw and fell upon his face and, and prayed, Father, let this cup pass, not my will, but thine be done. And the second time he prayed, Let this cup pass, not my will, but thine be done. And while the Son of God was praying, that hellish mob when was milling the streets of Jerusalem plotting his death. One could hear that night the sounds of old Mount Moriah's temples faded away in echo among the tombs of the prophets. It was a silent night and the moon sent forth its beams and the dewdrops wept in its flowing locks. Then he prayed the third time, Father, let this cup pass, not my will, but thine be done. And the Bible says his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling upon the ground. I've never had an intensity to make that figurative. You just think of the heartaches and disappointments that's come into your own life because of your own sins, your own blunders, your own mistakes. But Jesus Christ has taken upon himself the sins of the whole world. All the thieves, the murders, the whoremongers from Adam until time shall be no more were piled up on his head and his heart that night. And then he hears the tramp of martial feet. They were coming to arrest Jesus Christ. They took him and led him away from one mock trial to another. And at every mock trial, they were ridiculing him. They took him first to Annas, and then to Caiaphas, then to Annas, and then to Pilate, and then to Herod, and then back to Pilate. And every mock trial, they were ridiculing him and mocking him, saying mean, ugly, hateful things about him. And then while they were mocking him, some rebels shouted and said, If he's a king, we need to reach out our hands to him. So they walked up and took their feet of their hands and slapped the Son of God in the face. Another rebel shouted and said that if he's a if he's a king, we need to honor him with our mouth. So they walked up and spit their filthy spittle in the face of the Son of God. And all this was involved around the cross of Jesus Christ, what he was going to suffer. 
And then another rebel shouted it and said, If he's a king, he needs some kind of insignia. So they took the Son of God that night, tied this hand to ring, suspended from that side of the ceiling, and this hand suspended from that side of the ceiling, and they beat him across his back until his shoulder blades looked like white caps in a sea of blood that night. All these things were done that you and I might have our sins remitted. And after they had mocked and ridiculed the Son of God all night, finally it was Pilate's, Pilate's uh, responsibility to make the decision. He received a note from his wife that night that said, have, to, have nothing to do with this just man. I suffer many things in a dream because of him. And Pilate tried to reason with the people. He said, this man is innocent. They said, crucify him. Pilate said, I've examined him. I find no fault in the man. Their reply was, crucify him. Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Crucify him. And Pilate was a dirty politician. And so he gave way to those people and delivered Jesus Christ in the hands of that mob. And all humanity blushes that Pilate was a man. He was a cowardly, tyrannical judge. He knew that all the powers of Rome declared a man innocent until he was proven guilty. And he, he lived, delivered Jesus Christ to those people when he knew he was an innocent man. He even said himself he knew that it would cause envy that they were going to crucify him. And then they took Jesus Christ and they marched him to Golgotha. And when they got to Golgotha, they took his body and they nailed him to the cross. And after they had sufficiently fastened his body to the cross, they picked the cross up and dropped in the hole that had been prepared for it. And when they did that, they picked the whole world up and dropped the whole world into that hole that day. And the Son of God was left to hang there and to die. And that scene was so terrible while Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross that God sent a blanket of darkness over the face of the earth. And in the midst of that darkness, Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It seems that Jesus is saying, All Rome has forsaken me, this I understand. The last angel flew away at the advance of the Roman guard. Rome and all hell are against me, but oh my God, my only hope, my only stay, why hast thou forsaken me? But Jesus Christ had taken upon himself the work of redemption. He must feel the awful displeasure of God. And so penal thunders long shut up, rushed through the shivering night that night and pierced through the quivering flesh of the Son of God. And after that darn scared away after about three hours, if you'd had courage to come back and stood at the foot of that cross, looked up in the face of Jesus Christ, no doubt you would have felt that blood was gushing through your veins. Chills, no doubt, would have run over your body. And you would have cried out, oh my God, my God, he's dying. The Prince of Peace, the Savior of the world. The cup of anger is almost full. It's filling rapidly. Here at Jerusalem, here at your tombs, here at your prophets, here at your angels. And as you shave the darkness with the weeping wings, announce to the world that the Son of God is dying, that the old earth may put on weeds of mourning like Rachel of old. Go down to the judgment weeping for her children. And then Jesus Christ <clears throat> took that last stone, <clears throat> that stone hewn out of the diamond rocks of heaven, stained with his own blood, and laid it upon the highest and last corner and bowed his head and said, It is finished. And when those words were spoken, the old earth trembled. 
conifers reeled and mountains bowed. The oak trees of Bashan wept that day. Mount Hermon shook her frosted top. The cedars of Lebanon groaned, and the limestone arches of Pila's cave split and threatened to crush the finer bones, the finer dust, the bones of Abraham, because the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Savior of the world, had just died on that cross that day. That's what the cross of Christ means to me. What does it mean to you? How can one reject this Christ when he knows that Christ went through this awful pain? Not because of his sins. <clears throat> the Son of God had no sins. He did this because of your sin. And if you've been the only person ever lived upon this earth, he would have died for you. And he did die for you. And now, what does this Christ want you to do? Just think for a moment what he's done for you. Now, what does he want me to do? He wants every alien sinner to believe on him. In Hebrews 11:6. without faith is impossible to please God. He wants every alien sinner to repent of his sins. In Luke 13, 3 and verse 5, I tell you, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. He wants every alien sinner to confess his name. In Romans 10, and 10 9 and 10 and Matthew 10 and 32, he that confesses me before man, I will confess me before my Father. He that denieth me before man, I will deny him before my Father. And he wants you to be baptized into his body, Galatians 3.27. He wants you to be baptized in order that your sins might be forgiven. He wants you to be baptized your sins might be washed away. Then he wants you to live a faithful Christian life. I ask you, how can you reject this Christ that went to Calvary's cross, not because of his sins, but he went there because of your sins and because of my sins. Aren't you willing to obey him? If you're here this morning, I ask you, are your books balanced? Are you prepared to go? Are you loyal to this Jesus? Let me ask you this, and I don't mean to be ugly, but do you despise him because of what he did for you? No psychologists teach that you can do so much for an individual that he'll, he'll learn to hate you because you've been so good to him. And I've often wondered if that's the reason many people despise Jesus Christ. The reason they drink Jesus Christ, he's been so good to them. Can't you appreciate what he's done for you? So if you're subject to an invitation anyway, we invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing. Someday you'll stand at the bar on high. Someday your record you'll see. Someday you'll answer the question of life. What will your answer be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Sadly, you'll stand if you're unprepared. Trembling, you'll fall on your knees. Facing the sentence of life or of death. What will that sentence be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? In just a moment, we're going to sing the next dance of this song, but before we do, I want to ask you, what does the cross of Christ mean to you? I want you to think seriously. If you're not a faithful member of the church, I want you to think, while we sing this next dance, if you've never obeyed the gospel, I want you to ask yourself the question, 
Just what does this cross mean? It doesn't mean anything to me. While we sing the next dance, I want you to come if you're subject to invitation.